0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So another episode of the Westminster Kennel Club Annual Dog Show has come and gone, and every year, I get a little frustrated knowing that this is going on and knowing how hard so many people are working to end euthanasia of unwanted dogs and cats around the world. And yes, I believe that there's a connection between dog breeding, the American Kennel Club, and unwanted dogs in the United States. I'd like to welcome Elizabeth Oreck, National Manager of Puppy Mill Initiatives for Best Friends Animal Society, to discuss intentional breeding of dogs and its relationship to overpopulation and euthanasia welcome to the program elizabeth Oh, thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth, every year when the show is televised, I I just cringe because I just do not agree with the promotion of purebred dogs over mixed breeds, nor the creation of more dogs when we kill so many in our shelters. Elizabeth, I wanted to begin by asking you about a specific aspect of the show, and that is what happens to the popularity of the breeds that win the show? Do we see more of the winning breed in the market after a
1: show. Yes, that's exactly right. So for us, the concern is not so much with the dog shows themselves, but the effect that those dog shows have on the public and on the retail pet trade. And the fact that, as you just said, they do create this surge of demand for specific breeds of dogs, particularly the winning dogs. So people will rush out after the dog show to buy that breed of dog from a pet store or online or Craigslist or what have you. And the problem is that that type of dog may not be well-suited to that person or family or home environment. And on top of that, aside from what you just said, which is that there's already such a surplus of dogs, wonderful, amazing, healthy dogs of all breeds and ages and sizes and temperaments just looking for homes in our shelters. But also that that, in this case, it was the Beagle, right, that won the Westminster Best in Show. And that particular Beagle that won that prize was raised very differently than the beagles that you find available for sale in pet stores or online or on craigslist or any of those sources and so there's this unfortunate misperception that if someone purchases a purebred beagle from one of those pet retailers or online that it's going to be of the same quality and that it was raised as responsibly and humanely as that westminster beagle was and that's just unfortunately not realistic
0: how does it work, Elizabeth? Do the breeders just go into high gear and start breeding, or do they take orders from potential customers?
1: Well, I think it depends which breeders you're, you're referring to. Now, there are certainly caring, responsible breeders who are not very different from the puppy mills and the backyard breeders. These are the breeders who are doing it right. They're not doing it for profit. And so those are breeders who will not breed until they have met the potential purchaser and they have a contract with them and they insist on spaying and neutering them and they'll make sure that that dog can always come back to that breeder if something goes wrong over the lifetime of the dog. But then there are the the disreputable breeders who will, like you said, just start churning out those puppies, knowing that there's going to be a market for them. It's like when Obama got the Portuguese water dog. All of a sudden, everybody wanted a Portuguese water dog. And so the breeder started basically um, creating the the supply for what they knew was going to be a high demand.
0: Also, research from Hal Herzog's group shows that movies featuring dogs can increase the numbers of dogs of that breed registered by the AKC for years after the film comes out, like we saw after 101 Dalmatians in 1996.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And a big surge of the intake into shelters of those dogs. And so there's not just a problem with the overproduction of the dogs to meet the surge of demand. There's also the problem of where those dogs end up when they end up not being a good fit or when they end up not, you know, they end up being impulse buys and then people have second thoughts later or in the case of 101 Dalmatians people were buying entire litters for their kids so that their kids could experience the you know the joy of having lots of Dalmatian puppies running around. Well, that's a big reality check when those dogs grow into, when those puppies grow into dogs and then what happens they end up in the shelters. So it becomes all of our problems because those animals are being housed and killed in the shelters at the you know, 9000 a day at taxpayer expense.
0: The joys of, of witnessing the birth, that's a, a common thing we hear. Elizabeth, so that's one element, what we just talked about, of my criticism with the shows and with featuring and promoting specific breeds. But I want to hear your opinion on the idea I presented earlier, that breeding in general, breeding in general, whether responsible breeders or non-responsible breeders, contributes to the dog overpopulation problem in the United States.
1: Well, of course it does. Of course it does. When we are seeing 9,000 dogs and cats being killed in our shelters every day, so thousands of dogs every day being killed simply because there aren't enough people adopting them, and meanwhile there are high-volume commercial breeders churning out 2 million puppies a year for the pet trade, that's an economic equation that is very difficult to wrap your head around because... It sort of begs the question, why do we continue as a society to mass produce a product for which there's already such a surplus that we're having to kill so many every day? And the answer, of course, is profit. But it really doesn't make sense. And it, with any other product, you know, and I'm referring to, to these puppies as product. Right. Um, because that's really what they are to so many people who are profiting uh, from the breeding and the sale of these exactly. puppies. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, a, it's not an equation that you find normally in, in you know, the marketplace, in, in basic economics. You don't overproduce what you can't sell. And if you're killing a lot of healthy loving, wonderful animals in shelters every day, that's, you know, that is the surplus that um, unfortunately is being compromised by this.
0: Talk a little bit about the American Kennel Club, which is responsible for breed standards and basically promoting the value and status of purebred dogs over mixed breeds. What is their role in dog overpopulation?
1: You know, it's really interesting. So the the AKC has been around for a long time, right? They were established in 1886 to promote breed lineage, and that's still pretty much what they're known for. They're the good housekeeping seal of dog breeding. And, you know, they do some good work. They have some good programs, but they really are a big part of as you said, the overpopulation problem, the shelter overpopulation problem, but also the puppy mill problem. Um, They're a big participant in the profit uh, and sale of of these puppies, and that's ultimately, like so many things, uh, a matter of just profit. You know, every time a puppy is registered with the AKC, no matter where or how it was bred, The AKC makes money, and so you can see why they would be inclined to oppose legislation as they do regularly um, that might result in fewer breeders and fewer dogs, whether it's spay and neuter legislation or stricter breeding regulations. Fewer dogs equals fewer registrations, which equals fewer registration fees. And so it really comes down to bottom line. And what's more, if they stopped registering those puppies, it would be really difficult for pet stores to be able to justify charging $2,000 or $2,500 for a puppy that's comparable to a puppy available in a shelter for $70. Those papers, those AKC papers, give this perceived value. And you know it's like a logo. It's like a designer logo. It's a mark of distinction that, that comes with a high price tag. But those papers really, don't mean anything. They have no practical value. They are really just paper. We wish that everyone would choose to adopt rather than purchase a companion animal when they're looking to bring a new one into the home. Um, it Again, it just doesn't make sense to keep producing animals when so many are being killed for no other reason than there just aren't enough people adopting them. We really hope that People will choose to adopt first and foremost, and I think we're getting there as a society. I think we are definitely on the right track. I think the culture has changed. People are starting to accept adoption as as the first choice. They're starting to understand that killing does happen in our shelters. That the word "shelter" is an unfortunate misnomer. That not everybody um, used to understand meant you know animals died, and so I think we're definitely moving in the right direction
0: don't go away more with elizabeth Oric. we're talking about the intentional breeding of dogs in the akc and its relationship to overpopulation and euthanasia in our shelters you're listening to animals today Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Elizabeth Oreck. Elizabeth, you mentioned Best Friends encourages adoption over buying from an individual breeder, and you state that some people just don't want to adopt. Isn't there a role for rescue
1: groups in there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, one of the things that we try and make um, very evident to people who are not as familiar with rescue and adoption is that there are breed-specific rescue groups for every single breed of dog. So for those people that think they can't find what they're looking for in a shelter or with a regular rescue group that that works with all breeds of dogs, and they think that they have to go to a pet store, they have to go online to buy that particular type of dog, that there are, in fact, breed-specific groups who can accommodate any need. Anybody who's looking for any breed of dog can find what they're looking for with a rescue group in a shelter On petfinder.com, any of those sources of adoptable dogs, um, they don't have to go to a pet store or go online.
0: There's a phrase I think is deceptive. And that is responsible breeder. I know you used that term before. And it's, I think it's deceptive because whether you're, whether you're responsible or not responsible, you're still contributing to the overpopulation problem that exists in our country. Is Best Friends okay with certain dog breeders? Does Best Friends use the term responsible breeding?
1: Well, we use that term to differentiate between puppy mills and backyard breeders. So whether or not we support breeding as a practice we absolutely recognize that there are some people who are doing it better than others and that these are the things that people who are not ready or willing to adopt an animal who are determined to buy an animal need to know so that they do not unwittingly support the worst of the breeding practices that go on so You know, some of the differences are very obvious. Um, Responsible hobby breeders tend to spay and neuter, have a small number of dogs, only breed once a year, usually breed only one breed of dogs, most importantly, will not sell to a third party like a pet store or sell online. It would be really naive and irresponsible of us as an organization to not acknowledge the difference between those kinds of breeders and the puppy mills and the backyard breeders because as much as we can wish everybody would choose to adopt and not buy their next pet, the reality is there are a lot of people who, who just haven't gotten there yet, and we need to keep working on them. And in the meanwhile, we need to steer them in a better direction and take them down a better path so that they're not keeping the cruelty of the puppy mill industry going while we're trying to educate them into adoption as, as the number one choice.
0: And I understand, and I do acknowledge the difference as you explain it. I just think that term is an oxymoron, whether you're responsible or not. Like I said, it just contributes to the, the, the problem that exists in our country with dog and cat overpopulation. Elizabeth, Best friend has a puppy mill initiative. What does that consist of?
1: That consists of really a multi-pronged strategy to try and address the cruelty of puppy mills. Because as you know, puppy mills are an unfortunate legal industry and so we can't just shut them all down as much as we would like to ultimately the puppy mill problem the puppy mill solution is in the public's hands puppy mills are only producing those puppies because people are buying them. And if people stop buying them, there would be no reason to produce them, and they would eventually all go away. And so we have to attack this problem from uh, a number of different angles, which includes educating the public and encouraging adoption so that they don't continue to keep the industry going through their consumer choices, and advocating for better laws, in some cases writing laws, that address breeding regulation, requiring inspections, improving on the animal care standards that breeders have to comply with. Um, We're focusing very, very closely on getting ordinances enacted to actually prohibit pet stores from selling dogs and cats, and sometimes rabbits, unless they come from shelters or rescue groups. And trying to prohibit roadside animal sales. You know, all the things that contribute to the profit of the puppy mill industry. And so slowly but surely, we are shrinking down the number of puppy mills. We are increasing the number of um, animals that are getting adopted out of shelters and rescue groups. So we're really, we're making so much progress. And there are so many animal welfare organizations and rescue groups and committed individuals and concerned citizens who are contributing to that progress and it's really encouraging because i think we are seeing this industry die out yeah we're just trying to expedite and facilitate the process so that we can get to that time when we won't be mass producing dogs for an oversaturated market and people will start to adopt more um, more than they already are and we will start to see the shelters empty out and maybe we really can become a no-kill nation I think we can I think we're we're on track to getting there
0: there's some recent ordinances that have passed and pet stores where they can't sell they're not allowed to sell puppy mill puppies and they have to come from rescue groups or shelters or humane societies
1: that's right that's right communities throughout North America that cities towns counties have enacted ordinances prohibiting these pet stores from selling milled animals. They can only offer rescued pets for adoption, which is so great because there's a lot of people, even the people who do want to adopt, who just can't bring themselves to step foot in a shelter. You know, they're they're afraid it's going to be depressing and sad and noisy and loud and all those things. And and so by allowing pet stores to have rescued animals available for adoption in their stores, it's really increasing the opportunities for those pets to find homes. And at the same time, it's not increasing the amount of animals being imported into the community from these high-volume commercial facilities in other states. And, you know, it helps relieve the burden on the shelters by getting animals out of those facilities and into retail pet stores where they have a better chance of being adopted. So it's really a win-win for, um, for the, the pets and the community and the adopters and that's why we have such incredible momentum right now and so many communities have, have enacted these ordinances and now even states are starting to int- introduce state bills to ban pet stores from selling dogs and cats. So it's it's really encouraging.
0: We're, we're heading in a great direction. Elizabeth Orc thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways. By going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar and thanks for listening. Hi, it's dr laurie from animals today radio and today's animals today fun facts are about octopuses did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago and you can see that fossil at the field museum in chicago Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today.
3: Welcome back. Well, it's been more than 10 years since we learned about bad news, kennels, dogfighting operation, and of course, Michael Vick's involvement. Really a shocking revelation for everyone. So uh, would you think that nationwide dog fighting or animal fighting overall is less prevalent than it was a decade ago? Um, I'll have to admit, I really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I get a lot of news feeds and I know animal fighting and dog fighting is still a big problem. But there's new survey data out that speaks to this, as well as people's understanding about dog fighting prevalence. And to talk about this, I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Benovi. He is Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Welcome, Andrew.
2: Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me.
3: Okay, Andrew. So is dog fighting becoming less prevalent?
2: I'd have to say, uh, you know, that's not Unfortunately, not the case, and one thing that we have seen from the ASPCA side of it, and you mentioned the Michael Vick case, but since 2010 at least, we have assisted in over 200 dogfighting cases all around the country in 24 states, and this is something that's impacted in those cases almost 5,000 victims of of dogfighting, and these are animals that we have rescued, we have uh, animals that we have assisted law enforcement and veterinary professionals in, in consultations and investigations. And um, even though animal fighting and dog fighting is, in particular, is a felony in all 50 states, it's something that we continue to see as a, um, unfortunately, popular underground activity and uh, something that we at the ASPCA estimate that there could be tens of thousands of dog fighters in the United States right now.
3: Well, I admire uh, the work of the ASPCA, as do, I'm sure, all of our listeners. You really are at the front line of this. And, uh, and so it is surprising, I would say, that uh, it's still so common. Let's uh, talk about some new survey data that's available that speaks to uh, dogfighting and people's perceptions about it, if you would.
2: Sure. So one of the things that we know that, you know, the ASPCA, we're working this every day. You know, we have our investigations teams that go out and assist law enforcement and assist in in rescuing animals uh, from animal fighting uh, cases. Something that our our veterinarians are are working with uh, veterinarians all across the country of knowing for the the signs of animal fighting, what to look for if an animal comes in or if a dog comes into a veterinary practice. Something we work with law enforcement as well just so they can recognize uh, the particular types of, of things that we see all the time in, in working all these cases, but as for the general public, uh, what we have found that, that many people don 't know how common dogfighting really is and they 're unable to recognize these signs and and also uh, unfortunately are, are not sure exactly what to do and how to how to properly report this and a, a new national poll that the ACCA uh, just released shows that fifty seven percent of people believe that dogfighting doesn't even happen in their community, and unfortunately, that's just not the case. It's something that we have seen, uh, whether it's you know in urban settings or in rural, rural settings, if it's up north, down south, out west, wherever it is, all across the nation, we have seen these cases. Uh, and unfortunately, only uh, fewer than one third of people, 31%, are are very confident that they would recognize the signs of, of dogfighting. And um, only half of people, 53%, would know, uh, would know what to do. And 53% have said that they have reported suspected activities to local authorities. Uh, and 25% of people did, did nothing. So we, we see this gap between what the ASPCA and other animal welfare professionals and animal control officers and police officers all across the country who, who see this every day. Um, but the general public, they just may not know. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that we have been working on, in particular, uh, National Dogfighting Awareness Day, which we uh, recognize on April 8th, to really raise awareness about the prevalence of dogfighting in this country and, and encourage folks to take action against this this brutal form of, of animal cruelty. C-
3: can you uh, briefly review some of the signs people ought to be aware of?
2: Sure. You know, one of the things that our, our veterinarians in particular will uh, work with uh, veterinarians across the country to show... Uh, to teach them you know, what exactly this particular bite mark or this particular pattern might be, uh, might be in indicative of animal fighting, case, uh, animal fighting cases. So that's something that I our, know our, 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 our work uh, with our veterinary staff is, is, um, probably could speak a little bit better on. Um, but just in, in cases of, 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 of animal fighting, um, you know, it's not something that you, you might not see out, out in the open. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's it's something that, you know, behind a fence or something where you see a a bunch of dogs tied together all on chains, uh, particularly uh, a particular length apart. So they're not uh, quite touching each other. Things like that um, is something that if you suspect something is going on, contact your local police department, contact your local law enforcement or animal control officers and let them know and let professionals uh, go in and make that determination for themselves.
3: Is there a profile of. People who are involved in dog fighting—who does this these days? Uh,
2: un- unfortunately, there's not. It's something that we've seen uh, in all kinds of demographics. Whether it's you know wealthy people, whether it's not wealthy people, whether it's or, like I said, urban or rural, like in the country or out in the city. You know, we've we've assisted animal fighting cases and 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 out in the country, and we've assisted them right in our backyard in New York City. Uh, it's something that it's hard to pin on on one particular. Uh, uh, profile. It's uh, unfortunately uh, something that uh, occurs all all across the country.
3: Okay. So there is a federal legislation being drafted or proposed, the Heart Act. What is that?
2: Sure. So the Heart Act is the help extract animals from red tape. And what this bill gets at is two particular issues that we have seen firsthand when we are assisting uh, in animal fighting raids, the ASPCA, along with other uh, other uh, other animal welfare organizations, regularly assist law enforcement when it comes to animal fighting cases. When it comes to the federal system, you know the the FBI doesn't have an animal shelter. <laughs> you know they they um, rely on organizations like ours to assist in these cases. So if they're going in and they're they're going into an animal fighting raid. Uh, we come in and we help uh, take care of the animals, we help gather uh, evidence, and then we hold the animals as they go through the next step. And when it came, and one of the things like we mentioned before is talking about the lack of of awareness to these cases, one of the things that we want to get out is that um, when we rescue animals from the yard or when law enforcement rescues animals from from a yard from an animal fighting case, there's still other steps that that needs to go happen. It uh, and for some cases, especially on the federal level, it is a long road ahead of them for some animals. Yeah. And what the Heart Act does in particular is it gets to a problem that we have seen where once we rescue these animals, uh, it just takes too long for them to be rehomed and rehabilitated. And there, there's another problem along that goes along with it. The longer that the animals take, uh, it takes to get these animals rehomed, um, the more expensive it can be. So these two problems of one, this process is taking too long, the disposition for the animals uh, through essentially what, what is the federal asset forfeiture system is taking too long, and it is also uh, becoming too expensive the longer it takes. And that expense part is, is problematic uh, because if this is uh, difficult for shelters and rescues to assist in animal fighting raids, that's something that we, we don't want to, to have. So in order to address these two problems, what the Heart Act does is it uh, makes this process, this disposition process, shorter and ensures that those responsible are reimbursing the governments for the, for the cost of the care.
3: And please clarify something. The, so the FBI is involved in some of these cases, so it becomes a federal case when they're involved? I mean, you've got each of the 50 states, it's a felony for, to be do- involved in dogfighting, but yet there's another layer of federal law enforcement.
2: Sure. So that's that's a that's actually a really good really good question. Um, Essentially, when animal fighting crosses state lines, that is when uh, the federal law enforcement gets involved. Um, state, State, you know, animal fighting can occur in the state, and if unless it's crossing state lines or if other federal cases are involved, for example, drug trafficking. Uh, trafficking illegal weapons and that's one thing that we know for sure is that when animal fighting occurs chances are other uh, crimes are occurring as well so if those other crimes trigger a federal investigation that's that's usually when the FBI or other federal law enforcement is, is oh, called okay got so it. we have seen on the state level and that's uh, getting back to this this those issues on the state level, states have figured out that when you're seizing animals in these types of crimes, you need to have this process be quicker than when you're seizing a boat or seizing a, a car. Um, you can't just have animals waiting around while this, this asset forfeiture process goes forward. But on the federal level, there's, there's no difference. So the Hard Act makes that change in saying, when you're seizing animals, we need, to make this, we need to make this quicker, and we also need to ensure that the cost of care for the animals is being met.
3: Okay, and listeners who want to support this can go to the website and send a letter to Jeff Sessions or somebody else?
2: Uh, You you know, even better, you can go to uh, the ASPCA site. You can go to ASPCA slash advocacy, and there you can contact your members of Congress. Uh, We just had the bill, the companion measure introduced in the Senate uh, this week by Senators Harris and Collins, which joins the, the House legislation as well. Um, and ask their member of Congress to co-sponsor this the Heart Act.
3: That's great, Andrew. In the last minute or so, uh, sure. if you could just tell us about what the Break the Chain campaign is, and uh, tell us about my favorite actor, Sir Patrick Stewart's involvement
2: in that. <laughs> sure. So Sir Patrick Stewart actually stopped by uh, one of our uh, one of our uh, facilities and showed off exactly what uh, what dogs should be doing. And dogs shouldn't be on a chain. They shouldn't be in animal fighting uh, or in dog fighting pits. Um, and making sure that, uh, that that chain of cruelty is broken. And, and you can go follow uh, all of the information that we are, we are doing as part of our campaign, our campaign for National Dog Finding Awareness Day at ASPCA.org slash Break the Chain. And you can, you can see uh, Sir Patrick Stewart up there and, and see all the other work that's being done by advocates all across the nation. And we re- really appreciate his support in particular.
3: That's Andrew Benovi, Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Great information. Thank you so much for visiting us on Animals Today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
3: More with Animals Today after the break.
0: Welcome back to Animals Today. April 8th to the 14th is National Dog Bite Prevention Week. And according to the Insurance Information Institute and State Farm, the largest writer of homeowners insurance in the United States, dog bites and other dog-related injuries accounted for more than one-third of all homeowners' liability claim dollars paid out in 2017, costing almost $700 million dollars. An analysis of homeowner's insurance data by the Insurance Information Institute found that the number of dog-bike claims nationwide increased to 18,522 in 2017. This is a 2.2% increase compared to 2016. The average cost paid out for dog-bike claims was 37051 in 2017 which was up by 11.5% compared to 2016. Kristen Palmer, chief communications officer with the Insurance Information Institute, stated the increase in the 2017 average cost per claim could be attributed to an increase in severity of injuries. She states that the average cost per claim nationally has risen more than 90 percent from 2003 to 2017 due to increased medical cost as well as the size of settlements, judgments, and jury awards given to plaintiffs. California continued to have the largest number of claims in the United States at 2,228 claims. That's in 2017. California also had the highest value of claims in 2017 at $90.4 million. The state with the second highest number of claims last year in 2017, was Florida. The state with the highest average cost per claim was Florida at $44,700 per claim in 2017. Again, National Dog Bite Prevention Week, April 8th to the 14th, focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. Now, this is from the American Veterinary Medical Association website, with an estimated population of 70 million dogs living in U.S. households, millions of people, most of them children, are bitten by dogs every year. And you need to know that the majority of these bites, if not all, are preventable. The U.S. Postal Service reports that 6,244 postal employees were attacked by dogs in 2017. This is down a little bit compared to 2016. Children, elderly, and postal carriers are the most frequent victims of dog bites. And as we just reported from the Insurance Information Institute, in 2017, insurers across the country paid nearly $700 million in claims related to dog bites. Nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 to repair injuries caused by dog bites. That's according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Okay, so here's some great information from the AVMA or American Veterinary Medical Association website on dog bite prevention. Dog bites pose a serious health risk to our communities and society. More than 4.5 million people are bitten by dogs each year in the U.S., and more than 800,000 receive medical attention for dog bites, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. At least half of those bitten are children. A few more little facts. Almost one in five people bitten by dogs require medical attention. Children are by far the most common victims of dog bites and are far more likely to be severely injured. Most dog bites affecting young children occur during everyday activities and while interacting with familiar dogs. Senior citizens are the second most common dog bite victims. Remember, any dog can bite, right? Big or small, male or female, young or old, even the cutest, sweetest, fuzziest pets can bite if provoked. And a big point here, it's not the dog's breed that determines whether a dog will bite, but rather the dog's individual history and behavior. Most dog bites are preventable, and there are many things you can do at home and within your community to help prevent them. Dogs bite for a variety of reasons, but most commonly as a reaction to something. If the dog finds itself in a stressful situation, it may bite to defend itself or its territory. Dogs can bite because they're scared or have been startled. They can bite because they feel threatened. They can bite to protect something that is valuable to them, like their puppies, their food, or their toys. Dogs might bite because they aren't feeling well. They could be sick or sore due to injury or illness and might want to be left alone. Dogs also might nip and bite during play. Even though nipping during play might be fun for the dog, it can be dangerous for people. It's a good idea to avoid wrestling or playing tug-of-war with your dog. These types of activities can make your dog overly excited, which may lead to a nip or a bite. So what can you do to prevent dog bites? Well, socializing your dog helps him or her feel at ease in different situations. Responsible pet ownership, we all know about that. Education, educating your kids about how or whether to approach a dog. Also, pay attention to a dog's body language. That could be very helpful. And most importantly, avoid risky situations. Avoid petting a dog under these scenarios. If the dog is not with its owner, if the dog is with its owner, but the owner does not give you permission to pet the dog, if the dog is on the other side of a fence, don't reach through the fence or over a fence to pet a dog. If a dog is sleeping or eating, if a dog is sick or injured, if a dog is resting with her puppies or seems very protective of her puppies and anxious about your presence, if a dog is playing with a toy, if a dog is growling or barking, if a dog appears to be hiding or seeking time alone. So you want to avoid petting a dog under these risky situations. Okay, again, National Dog Bite Prevention Week. Educate yourself and others about how to prevent dog bites. AVMA website has some great information here. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. it's Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about giraffe hunting. Within the limitless grassy African plains lies the mighty giraffe, sharing its home with zebras, antelope, lions, cheetahs, and various other animals that make their home in the heart of Africa. These beautiful creatures face deforestation, agricultural conversion, and poaching. Their population has declined at least 40 percent over the past decade. Today, there are only approximately 80,000 giraffe left in the world. Giraffe numbers are shrinking, and their conservation status is vulnerable on the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. And the killing of these docile vegetarians continues. Besides the pressure of habitat loss, legal hunting and illegal poaching both occur. Giraffe trophy hunting tourism can be lucrative for the operators and can charge as much as $15,000 for a trip, guaranteeing a kill. Illegal sport hunting is also reported to be prevalent. And poachers continue their own killing, seeking meat and coats primarily. Another factor contributing to the poaching crisis is the use of parts of the tail as a dowry to the fathers of prospective brides in certain cultures. The animals are literally being killed just to obtain the tail. And, as we've heard before, enforcement of wildlife protection laws is extremely challenging. So please, check out the important work of Draft Conservation Foundation, African Wildlife Foundation, World Wildlife Foundation, and Wildlife Conservation Society to learn more and to see how you can help protect these gentle giants. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute.